Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, and this is a podcast for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. This year, I'm living in Iceland, and in each episode, I visit a different Icelandic museum to discover what stories they hold and how they reflect and shape Iceland's unique cultural identity. Before I started exploring Icelandic museums, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, working for the American Association for State and Local History, a national organization that supports history museums and the people who work at them. Recently, I got a request from this association's women's history group to write for their blog about women's history in Iceland. I thought I would take it a step further and create a special episode of the podcast about the subject. Iceland is a particularly interesting place to study women's history. It's often called one of the best places in the world to be a woman, and has been ranked number one in the World Economic Forum's Gender Equality Index for nine years in a row now. In January of this year, Iceland became the first country in the world to require employers to prove they are paying women equally. But, as with every country, there is still a lot of work to be done towards the goal of full equality, and not all women are equally represented in Iceland's progress. The Me Too movement has helped show that Iceland still has a systemic imbalance of power between the sexes. And just this year, a large group of foreign women in Iceland started organizing to highlight their experiences of gender-based discrimination and advocate for change. And of course, trans women in Iceland are still fighting for full rights and acceptance in the legal system and society at large. While working in the field of public history, I learned that one of the best ways to answer questions about history is to ask the experts in the archives. So, to find out what it's like to study and research women's history in Iceland, I headed down to the basement of the National Library in Reykjavik to talk to Raquel Adolstotter, the sole staffer for Kvennesjörgsat Islands, the women's history archives in Iceland. I'm Raquel Adolstotter. And uh, I'm a specialist here at the Women's History Archive. I'm also the only <laughs> staffer. Um, and uh, I just started working here 18 months ago. I took over from a woman who had been here for 15 years. And I have a major in history, and uh, specifically, so Icelandic women's history. And even more specifically, it's uh, the interwar years in Iceland and sort of women's participation in politics then. But I tried to cover everything and, and, and know a little bit about every period in Iceland to be able to help people find sources and other things. It's a Women's History Archive and uh, it was founded in 1975 on 1st of January. It was a really a, a grassroots movement and a grassroots thing. Um, uh, and it was sort of founded because the UN had said it, it was it was the women's year that turned out to be the women's decade. Uh, and of course, later in the year, we had the women's strike on 21st of October. So it's a, it was sort of a part of this sort of movement really in Iceland where sort of women 
were really taking their place. It was founded by Anna Sigurðardóttir. She was born in uh, 1908. So uh, this year is 110 years from her birth. And uh, she had no university background or anything, but she had been collecting sources on women's history since about from 1947 uh, and on. So she was very keen on, on history and, and women's representation in, in history. And, and she really just said it was a falsification of history, how, how sort of women weren't being included in the narrative. So it was found in 1975 and it was in her home for 20 years, <laughs> which is a... Uh, pretty great and then but it was always a sort of the big goal was always to be a part of a bigger institution of a governmental institution and that uh, sort of dream became a reality in 1996 and it moved here to the national and university library uh, where we are now was in the collection well mostly so at first they weren't sure how to how to put it it was just supposed to be a broad way to get to know uh, Icelandic women's history uh, throughout the ages and it has sort of developed into because it's a part of a, a large museum now so we don't really collect books anymore although we get a lot of books that are gifts it's it's mostly private collections uh, and mostly from women's associations so we have women's associations from uh, 1895 and up to i think the newest was founded in was 2004 or something so so many women's uh, organizations in Iceland uh, will always give their private papers to uh, the Women's History Archive as just part of how they function. So we have minutes from meetings from, you know, 1907, 1914, and, and just throughout the 20th century. We also have uh, a lot of private collections from women uh, who were connected to the women's movement in any way. So a lot of diaries, a lot of letters as well, focusing on sort of the women's struggle but, but then we also want we also have the workers women like we, we also want to have uh, a very broad representation of women in Iceland. I needed a historical overview to put the rest of our conversation in context so I asked Raquel to brief me on what she considered the most significant events and accomplishments in modern Icelandic women's history. The, the biggest one would be the Women's Rights Association founded in 1907 by Brigitte whose painting is behind me right now. She was the leading suffragette, uh, very focused on fighting from for the women's rights uh, for the vote. And of course, many more women were with her. So that's a huge thing. It was always so she never wanted it to be divided by political parties. So you had women on every spectrum of political spectrum uh, working together uh, since 1907. Uh, and this network of women, it's, it's very curious to me. And I think it's... It's a reason why I think the women's strike in 1975 uh, happened so well. The Women's Day Off of 1975 is a particularly inspiring protest that feels so relevant to the current debates and protests over gender inequality happening all over the world right now. In the mid-1970s, women in Iceland made less than 60% of what men made for the same work. To protest this inequality, 95% of all Icelandic women around the country walked out of work on October 24, 1975, shutting down telephone services, newspapers, theaters, schools, airlines, fish factories, banks, all of which relied on women to stay open and operational. It was supposed to be a strike, but then they made it a little less dramatic. It was a women's day off. They got a broad participation from every political group, from every union, basically everyone. It's, it's kind of crazy in a very short amount of time. So they only decided this two or three months ahead. So 
they stopped working at around two because that's when they figured out they had worked for the same their pay because pay wasn't equal and uh and they walked out of work and walked downtown together and they had a huge celebration they had many speeches many songs it was a fun event really it it's very similar to uh the national day in 17th of june you know, was a celebration so um, that's sort of the big and then that's 1975 then 1980 we elect a woman president 1983 we have the women's list and women went from from so the, in the parliament we have 63 people and the women were usually one two three persons so it went up to five percent and then to 15 percent um so it tripled when the women's list came on the women's list was a, a group of women uh, who in 1982-1983 they founded this women's list there was also uh, so only women could be on on list for elections for parliament and also for the city elections they would work together they were not always in agreement on everything they were not always you know someone from the left someone from the from the right but they were working together to create a, a women's party to to get the women's agenda on in parliament <laughs> so they were able to increase the amount of women in in, in parliament yeah. yes and then also just focus on uh, so maternal leave and then later paternal leave a lot of sort of rights for women um, to equalize things and of course women have been doing this for the decades before as well but only just one woman or t- two women yeah. in parliament but now there were many more you know they had six eight and then all the other parties had to put women on their lists mm-hmm. as well right yeah uh, so so uh, the, they would also get the women's vote so it just sort of increased a lot and then you know we have sort of more feminist groups coming afterwards It sounded to me like Icelandic women were politically active long before Iceland even achieved full independence in 1944. But I wondered when they first got a voice in elections. And uh, when did Icelandic women get the vote? Most of Icelandic women got the vote in 1915 as part of uh, their huge campaign and had been for almost two decades by that point, also just to get the vote in in local elections. So they got the vote for the parliamental election in 1915. It was only women 40 years or older, uh, and then the the age was supposed to get lower by one year uh, every year. So 39 in 1916 and so on. Because, you know, women had to sort of adjust to be uh, thinking in this way to vote. But then in 1920, every woman got the right to vote equal to men, you know, working women as well and younger women. We had the the big celebration in 2015. I think we'll do another one in 2020 to celebrate the sort of universal suffrage. Yeah, Yeah, I remember seeing all the... uh, I was here in 2015. I remember seeing all the great art and banners everywhere and exhibits in the library. It was very inspirational. Yeah, it was everywhere. It was very fun um, and brought, brought a lot of people together. Tell me about Iceland's first female president. Yes. Uh, well, Vigdís Finnbogadóttir, uh, she is now, she has this iconic status in Iceland, and she is pretty much adored by almost everyone. And so she's, you know, I don't know if, you know, you'd say she's the president of her heart. <laughs> so she was a very successful president, very sort of cultural. In 1980, Iceland made world history when they elected Vigdís Finnbogadóttir, as the fourth president of Iceland. She was the world's first democratically directly elected female president. She remained the president for 16 years, making her still to this day the world's longest-serving elected female head of state. 
Born in 1930, Vigdis studied French literature at the Sorbonne in Paris, the history of theater at the University of Copenhagen, and education at the University of Iceland. Even before becoming president, Vigdis was pushing back against gender norms of the day. At age 41, she adopted a daughter, the first time a single woman in Iceland was allowed to do so. She was elected in 1980, um, and that was before I was born. So, uh, so it's hard for me to imagine for her not to be popular. But she was actually quite radical, um, and and she wasn't really a front runner in this battle. Um, so, but a lot of people wanted her to run, especially women and women's movements. But of course, many others. Uh, she comes from so theater, but also from just a sort of languages and cultural background. But she used to be, she used to manage the national theater. Uh, so she was she was pretty beloved by that, and she was also, you know, she was on uh, TV. She was educating people, you know, t- having sort of little French lessons on t- on the national broadcasting station, so people were familiar with her from TV. But she was also was a single mother. She had adopted a daughter, and she also had breast cancer. She was very forthright and uh, forthcoming about that. Um, so she only had one breast, and the turning point in her her campaign was when her opponent, who was the most likely to win, said, you know, how are you going to be president with just one breast? And and her answer and her spunk was that, you know, I'm not going to be breastfeeding the nation, so I think I'll be fine. (laughs) This is the most amazing story I've ever heard, and you can probably, I hope there's a clip on YouTube. And, And then that was the turning point. And then everybody sort of, you know, people really got behind her and, and and wanted to vote for her after that. But she barely won. But then all the elections after that, I think she was four, four times she was the president for four. Uh, yeah. She was the first female president. Yeah. And that's a really, that's a huge landmark. And that's really much part of our image or self-image as well, uh, being in Iceland and Icelanders. And also just because she's so beloved. For my American listeners, it's probably important to note here that the Icelandic presidency, like in many European countries, has limited executive powers. The president is elected directly by the people as head of state, while the prime minister, who is the head of government, has a more similar role to the American president. Iceland elected its first female prime minister, Johanna Sigurðardóttir, in 2009, and its second, Katrín Jakobsdóttir, in the most recent elections this past fall. Before Vigdis was elected, the Icelandic presidency was largely ceremonial, but she played an important role in transforming it into a more active position, advocating strongly for reforestation and other environmental issues in Iceland. I do have an uncle who said once that, oh no, she wasn't a good president. She was always just planting trees and, you know, being very, she was very peaceful and civil. Um, So he wanted a more political president, right? Um, and he got that in, in the next president elected. Uh, so so she's, she's a, just a great figure. Once I had a bit of history under my belt, I was interested in understanding what was unique about collecting and preserving women's history in Iceland. I think it's, it's such a local, small community. That's the thing. I know about most of the women's associations in Iceland. They're there. quite a few that have been throughout the ages. And so, you know, you can spot where's a gap. You know, and, and you can try and find those minutes and those sort of papers in a, their private collections. Um, and it's very easy to, to talk to people and relatives to try and collect the material and get, get them to uh, hand it over. <laughs> um, but what is very similar to most countries is that because we have the manuscript department in Iceland, it's in the same building as I am now in, 
and are my colleagues. And that's been uh, for uh, over 170 years. We are from 1975, but they're from back in the 80s. So they have, you know, many more. They have a lot of p- paper, private collections as well, letters. But then they're what they're trying to do now is is trying to get retrieve the women because they are in the archival collections there, but their their name never comes up. Mm. Uh, so they they're trying to sort of fix trying to fix the registration so that the women's names will also be appear and you can find their documents easily. Uh, so we've been finding a lot of gold really there, um, which we weren't known really that they were part of other bigger collections coming in. What's the most interesting thing you've discovered and since you since you started working here? I don't know. It's There are so many things. I really like... Well, there, oh, there are so many things. So 2015 came a, a small collection from the first woman in parliament in 1922, Inki Perkaupi You know, none of nothing from her has been preserved anywhere. But then they found this box in a school she was a teacher at and they gave it here. And then, you know, you have a little purse, you have... You have uh, photographs as well, but then also letters. So that's pretty amazing to me. And, and, and it's almost like a hunt. Like you have to dig and find, you know, even uh, even the parliament, like the women in parliament, not many of them. You know, we're still trying to find their private collections documents. What I found yesterday was was pretty uh, creepy, really. I was like, oh, I was opening uh, this box and I'm trying to find documents from 1918 for a project. And I opened like, what's in this box? I, I can't find, I don't remember what was in there. It was this, like, this box in a box. And I opened it and it was a lot of hair <laughs> from the woman, like, like a long braid so that, that they kept. And so we have also just sort of... I don't know what to do with it. I just closed it very fast, and 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 it was pretty stunned. So, so we have. I mean, that's very personal uh, from 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 a person. Yeah. Um. I don't know. There, there, and then also, I think it was 2016. We have the rat stocking group of a sort of radical left uh, group. They're very sort of activists, very fun. They were not very. They weren't thinking about documenting everything they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we had some documents and. From them, but not a lot. But then uh, this one woman found in her garage this boxes, and up came these these did you say placards, the po- oh like a po- like a homemade posters, okay. like huge homemade posters. They were wow. actually quite famous. One is from like a cow uh, to protest beauty competitions, and like this this huge thing. And then because they were so excited, this group most of them are are still alive. They all came to visit oh, wow. and to look at it themselves. So I got to sort of you know. I got to have this great moment with them, and I was very new in this this job, uh, so I just got to meet them all, and they were just looking through their own material and sort of revisiting wow. this time. Yeah, so it, yeah, so you it's, couldn't get better group to help you identify no. and describe everything and, too. And they were a big part of so the individual in this group are a big part of why the women's hysterica was allowed to be part of the National University Library because they worked at the the Ministry of Education mm. and were basically just lobbyists for the Women's History Archive. So it's all, I think the Women's History Archive is special in a way that is very connected still to these grassroots movements yeah. um, and to these individuals. Um, and, and they also are bringing papers and photos and, and, and their private collections to here. So Yeah, it sounds like it's still a very reciprocal relationship. It's not just a, a place for history or old documents. It's very much yes continuum. From then till now, yeah, that's a, yeah. I feel I feel like that. That's a goal, at least. I think I think it should work like this. 
It was clear from my conversation with Raquel that she considered women's history and contemporary feminist activism to be interconnected and interdependent. I agree with this sentiment, and so I think a podcast about women's history in Iceland wouldn't be complete without consideration of the future of women's rights and equality in Iceland. Well, we're doing a lot with Me Too uh, movement at the moment. So there's a lot of things in just sort of how we how we talk to each other and how we approach each other and how we act towards each other. The, the genders and just people in general, I think, that we're sort of sorting through. Pay isn't equal. Uh, opportunities aren't equal, especially then if you go to sort of uh, women who are immigrants. Right now, my, my concern is, uh, so I've been a, a feminist activist since I was about 18. And, and then, it's not that far away, but still, <laughs> Then it was not so popular. Now it's a popular thing to be a feminist. It's a local thing. You, it's in fashion, um, and it's it's odd. Uh, it's great because I feel I kind of feel like I won, <laughs> but then also it, it feels like wait, it doesn't like it doesn't feel quite right. I'm I'm afraid that there might be a backlash. I'm afraid it won't hold, but it seems to be. So I'm really hoping it goes well. Yeah, I'm very positive. But then in this latest election for the parliament, very recently, a few months ago, women parliamentarians, women in the parliament, they dropped. So we were almost equal. We were almost 50%, you know, but then it dropped to 43% or so. And so fewer women are in parliament now. So, I mean, there's some, there's always, there can always be a backlash. It's not for certain things will continue to go this way. So, But I hope so. There's a lot of sort of fight in people right now. So I hope I hope it goes well. Raquel told me that one of the goals for the archive was to have a very broad representation of women in Iceland. So I asked her about the representation of queer, lesbian, bisexual, and trans women in the Women's History Archive. Unfortunately, she told me that while there are a few documents connected to women assumed to be queer, and one poster from a society called Islandsk Lesbiska, whose papers have been difficult to locate, these women are by and large hidden, missing, and underrepresented in the collections. I wanted to know more about this absence of queer women in Iceland's historical record. So Raquel connected me with three researchers trying to address this gap. Iris Ellenberger, 
Hafdís Erla Hafsteinsdóttir and Ásta Kristín Benediktsdóttir are the folks behind a project called Hinsein Hultkóra, Hinsein Kynverun Kvenna í Íslenskum Heimildum 1700-1960, which translates roughly as Hidden Queer Women, Queer Women in Icelandic Sources 1700-1960. I sat down with Ásta and Iris to learn more about this project and the current state of historical research on queer women in Iceland. My name is Austa. I am a literary scholar, I'm finishing my PhD in Icelandic literature, hopefully very soon. <laughs> I uh, also teach part-time at the University of Iceland, and I have uh, also been doing my PhD in Ireland, in Dublin. So I have like a, I'm going for a joint de- PhD degree from the two universities. My PhD is on uh, an Icelandic uh, writer and uh, how he writes about uh, same-sex desire in his work. It's one of the first, or probably the first, like big literary uh, queer analysis in Iceland on Icelandic literature. So that was a big, big project, and it led me to history and and all all, all kinds of other projects with Iris and others. Um, because in order to analyze literature from a queer perspective, you kind of have to know the histor- um, historical and cultural context for the for the work. Yeah, my name is Iris Ellenberg, and I'm a postdoctor fellow at the University of Iceland in history. I usually uh, look at the history of migration. That's kind of my specialty. Uh, history of migration and transcultural history in, in an Icelandic context. But lately I've been going further into queer history. The Hinsey and Hildkona project aims to collect sources by and about queer women and other people considered women in Iceland and share them through a new online database. Austin Iris explained to me that one of the reasons their project is so important is that very little research has yet to be done on queer history in Iceland. And there is a big need for primary sources to be made available for professors, researchers, and students. Well, actually, the reason we got into this project is that we edited a book together, the mm-hmm. two of us and Tavdís. It was the it's the first book on queer history, like in Iceland, that's ever been written in Iceland. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that reason, and it, I think it's maybe in the last three years that like, this subject has people are, are really interested in it, and there are. Always more and more like people doing PhDs and you know mm-hmm. grappling with this field. So it's a very it's a very recent development that people are actually interested in this and are are looking into 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 the the subject of queer history in the research. When we edited the book, uh, what we came across was that there was very little information about queer women. And most of the the articles dealt with uh, homosexual men, and I mean, the reason for this is the same reason as why there's more research on men than women. Like in the archives, there's there are there are fewer documents uh, written by women or about women about women's issues than written by men and about men's 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 issues. We kind of figured out figured out figured out that people who are interested in this subject, like queer women in Icelandic history. They had no starting point. So that is why we applied for a grant to launch this project so that we could create a platform or kind of create a starting point for people so they could go to this one place and kind of see, okay, these are the kind of documents or kind of sources that I could use in my research instead of having to kind of invent the wheel, so so to speak. So we, yeah, so we're planning to like gather this information that we find, of course, and put them in a database. Like it is said, um, we 
are not planning to keep it just for queer women. We're like we we're like hoping that it will eventually become this like bigger, broader database for um, queer history. In addition to collecting physical sources, they are also collecting oral histories from the oldest generation of queer women in Iceland. Yeah, they're they're not very old actually. Like if 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 you're talking about like lesbians and bisexual women, it's it hasn't been a long time since women starting started identifying as uh, lesbians or, or bisexual. So the oldest generation, these are women around sixty, most of them. We're planning twenty five interviews with kind of the oldest generation of queer women in, in, in Iceland, uh, women that remember growing up and. Uh, not uh, knowing what being a lesbian was or what being queer was or uh, or homosexual. Uh, women who grew up before the identity politics and, and became teenagers and young women before 1978 when the identity politics just started going up in Iceland. Yeah, so this is, so this is both research into documents and archives mm-hmm. as well as oral histories. Yeah. I know that one of the challenges in doing any kind of history on LGBTQ plus IA people is the 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 problem of of titles and labels and like you were saying, um, we've only just started to uh, come up with these ways to talk about people and people talking about themselves. And in the past, there isn't this uh, self identification. So that said, how are you? What? How are you kind of identifying the scope of of what women you look for, mm-hmm. um, and and then what are the challenges in finding them if they haven't they haven't identified themselves? This is <laughs> this is one of the big issues, I guess, and it's an issue for it's also it's just a challenge. Let's not call it an issue; it's a challenge because it's a it's about our methodology, how how we approach what we're looking for, but it's also how we present the project to others to make them help us because we have found out that people usually think that we're looking for lesbians and people have a very very like clear idea in their heads about what a lesbian is uh, so they say there's nothing there or like they maybe know this one woman who they believe was a lesbian but they don't want to tell us that her name because that would be so hor- horrific for her family and her legacy or whatever and uh, i can completely understand that but we have to try to we are approaching this Differently, we're not looking for self-identified lesbians, which are looking for women who were in some way or another uh, different from the norm, and the norm being not our norm, but the norm at the time when when the woman was alive. So we both have to try to understand how the society thought about gender and sexuality, and how uh, these women did not fit into that kind of model of what uh, normal gender and normal sexuality was. Um, it's tricky to look for these things because <laughs> we don't always know what we're looking for. Uh, we have ended up following clues like women who dressed in pants, for example. A woman in pants doesn't tell us anything about her sexuality, of course, and we have no idea what kind of sex life she had, but she was somehow different and there are stories about her maybe. And, and then we look more into it to see what we find. Yeah, that's why we use queer instead of lesbian or bisexual or, or whatever mm-hmm. to get this broad scope to so that we can include women who were somehow different, like these women who wore pants. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about their sexual orientation, but they stood out in some, some way. And that's why the label queer is is useful. 
what kind, can you kind of walk me through some of the research you're doing? What does it look like to, uh, what does it look like to sit there and, 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 and try and find these, uh, these stories and, um, these histories? We've been doing different things. Like some of us have been in the archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I, my, uh, one of the things that I bring into this project is that I know a lot of people. I have a network of women who somehow have, like, I don't know, know things or have heard things. And they start talking after a few cups of coffee or a few cups of, of, of few glasses of beer. So I have sometimes just basically went out with, you know, if I'm somewhere with a group of women who are maybe slightly older than I am, I give them time to drink the first beer and then I ask them questions. <laughs> That's it's a weird way of approaching this, but this is something that has proved to be very useful. Yeah. And using kind of clues in terms of in the historical kind of just I heard that this person or, or that kind of thing. Yeah, like the things that have come up are like uh, when I have explained and made them understand that we're not looking for self-identified lesbians, uh, we are looking for women who were different from the norm, uh, even women that we don't really know that much about. But the only thing that we know that they were somehow not you know, like the norm at the time. Uh, they start telling me stories about these women about who were like, you know, best friends for decades. And nobody talked about it because they were just friends. So nobody has even bothered to like talk about it or mention it. And nobody would think that this is something that maybe is interesting to us, but it is. They tell me stories about this kind of something you can call gossip, like something that they don't want me to take seriously. But I take, uh, we take it as a clue mm. and maybe check the name of the person mm. that the gossip is about and see if we can find something else. So I, I kind of read on, now I, when I say I read on your website, I mean through a combination of my limited Icelandic and a little <laughs> bit of help from Google Translate, I got the sense that you are hoping to kind of create some teaching guides and make this uh, not just a, a source for academics um, interrogating the subject, but also for teachers and students. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? And what? how how do you think that will go in terms of getting that in the classroom? Uh, the first step, of course, is to gather all the, the sources that we can, and that's going to be an ongoing project. Uh, but then we want to put them into a database uh, somehow. We want to put this information, like it is said, in one place so that people who want to do research on queer history know where to start. But also, we're hoping to be able to uh, make this available, not just for academics, but for like basically everyone, uh, students, primary schools, secondary schools, um, everyone who's interested in the project. So the plan is that the database or the website will be um, will invite basically anyone who's interested to, to come and, and start gathering information and, and, and doing their own research, basically. Do you think there is an openness in the school system to use this material? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, especially since it says so in the national curriculum that, yeah. uh, that students should be able to kind of uh, see themselves in the material they're given and what they're taught. Uh, so they should learn about, uh, queer women or queer people in history, but the fact is that they don't. And that one of the main reasons is that there's so little inf- little information, mm-hmm. so li- little material, and so little research. So th- that was kind of one of our selling points that this project could help amend that situation, um, so that uh, queer students can see themselves, mm-hmm. like or uh, yeah, somebody similar to them in in Icelandic history. And yeah, I think that teachers are willing 
to uh, implement implement it in their teaching. Uh, the, there is, I think, there is a lot of need uh, for material about queer issues. Me and my partner made a website with basic information uh, on uh, que- queer issues, and it's it's being used in, I think mostly uh, in high schools but also uh, in universities and also in 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 uh, on other school levels uh, and it's being be, being used quite a lot so i think that uh, teachers have a hard time finding material mm. uh, to include creatures in 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 what they teach so i think i i think this would be helpful i hope I, so uh, i think so i think like Teachers, of course, don't have much extra time to gather more information than what they just have in the books that they're teaching and all that. So uh, this website that Edith and her partner made is, is brilliant because it just explains the basic concepts and like stuff like that. So that's very easy to use in teaching. And I think that people are absolutely willing to do it if they have the material. <laughs> but I also think that I think a part of what we will do if we, we uh, write this teaching material and like these guidelines for teachers about how to teach uh, about the queer history, a part of that is always going to be how they can uh, encourage people to think about things in the queer way. Like, so we don't have to always have to find the queer person in history it's also about making students and teachers, you know, practice thinking about the way, not assuming that everyone was heter- heterosexual or mm. like, mm. And, and that's just practice. And I think teachers, you know, if they practice themselves and thinking about the past in that way, uh, they can pass that on to their students. I like that. During my visit to the Women's History Archive, Raquel told me that only about 12% to 20% of documents and archives in Iceland are from women. The problem is that their documents simply are not being bought and solicited for preservation. So you can imagine then how few of that 12 to 20 percent includes materials by or about queer women. The first step now, both for Raquel at the Women's History Archive and for the researchers with the Hidden Queer Women Project, is to find these records within the existing archives, collect more documents created by and about women and queer women, and make the collections available and accessible for researchers and teachers searching for sources about women's history. Both the Women's History Archive and the Hinsein Hildkona Project are looking back over a male-dominated historical record to find the women whose lives and stories are hidden in the archival collections and in undiscovered attic boxes. This work of refocusing our historical awareness is not unique to Iceland. The same work is being done by museums, libraries, archives, academics, and amateur historians all over the world. If you found this episode interesting, I challenge you to talk to a historian at your local museum or university and learn more about the hidden women in your community's history. Finally, since this is a museum podcast that strayed into the archives on this episode, I thought it fitting to end by asking Raquel, Auste, and Iris a question about how their work would translate into a museum space. Here's Raquel talking about what her dream exhibit with unlimited funding would look like. Oh, I would, I would really like to hear women's voices. <laughs> I'm also connected to paper. I'm yeah. reading their speeches. Um, and we know, so a lot of women, they were on the radio and they were talking on the radio. And then you, you can sort of read some of the things they said, but I would very much like to listen to them. Mm. So I would like to have some sort of audio, some uh, like, Yes, 
uh, some art, some sort of audio exhibition. So you're going big. We're starting with interactives and headphones yes. and video. I'm, so I have a, like a poster of Björk behind me, the <laughs> singer and a songwriter. And she, like, she made this exhibition, right? And MoMA, like this huge, like, 3D thing. Yeah, it would be so, so nice if you could just sort of go in, have headphones. You can hear the voices. You can hear their just people. And, and you can also hear it with their perspectives, right? So if I read that, read something, I'm reading it with my 21st century eyes and brain, right? So you can sort of see them and how they, and hear how they talked and presented things. And, and I mean, did they have a lot of spirit in their voice when they were making these speeches? Or, you know, how did they talk? And there's a nuance for me that, that will be very interesting. But not a lot of it has is preserved. Hmm. So like the voice of, of Briet Pjatnjusta, they are leading Sovjet. No, if I could hear that voice, that would be amazing. Uh, well, I'll, I'll attend that. <laughs> put it on with the multimedia exhibition yes. and the Icelandic Museum of Women's History. Yeah. I'll come back. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It'll you. be all hologram. Yes. Recreated. Right. The, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yes, that would be amazing. And here are Iris and Austa explaining an idea they have to queer the National Museum here in Reykjavik. There are three of us uh, queer uh, researchers at the university who came up with this idea to incorporate you know, queer issues and queer history into the uh, National Museum, the main ex- exhibition, to create a kind of a pink thread through the exhibition where you stop maybe eight or ten times to create eight or ten stops through the, throughout the exhibition where we, kind of, where we kind of interrogate it from a queer perspective and ask questions uh, on like queer issues and you know uh, yeah to have a kind of a, a queer perspective on maybe you know monasteries in Iceland in the 13th century or uh, yeah the main exhibition is a lot about, uh, I think it's called Building a Nation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's all about this, like, where the Icelandic nation came from and all that. And, of course, there's nothing non-heterosexual or cisgendered in there, yeah. nothing at all. Uh, so we just, yeah, uh, making the audience kind of stop and ask questions about, was the well, Icelandic nation, has it always been heterosexual? Yeah. <laughs> where were the queer people? Where the queer people, yeah. Yeah. That's the and the other here today. Við erum farnar að hugsa. The music at the beginning of this episode is by the Icelandic musician Brynja Bjarnadóttir. The two songs in the middle and at the end are recordings of the 1975 Women's Day Off protests in Iceland. Visit my website, hethman.com, that's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com, to listen to Brynja's music and learn more about Icelandic women's history. If you liked this episode, please take a minute to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or send me a tweet at Hannah underscore R-F-H. Reviews and social media shares help people with great taste like you discover the Museums and Strange Places podcast. Oh, 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 oh,